it's not gonna happen while I'm alive. Right, and right. I really doubt unless something crazy happens, which who knows. The best organizations uh, take deadlines seriously, but they also make sure no individual is facing a deadline alone. Getting somewhere else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. This episode, we'll visit a sinking island and talk to its residents. And dig deeper into the effect of deadlines. Asking ourselves the hard questions. Like how we face a foretold doom. And how can we act now in a way to best meet our deadlines before they crush us? Yeah. Let's figure that out. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get some answers here. article in National Geographic about why people live near volcanoes. It was published after Mount Kilauea erupted in Hawaii and the residents of the Leilani estates had to evacuate. Mount Kilauea is the most active volcano on the planet, though usually its lava flows toward the ocean rather than inland like it did in 2018. So did it say why they live near volcanoes anyway? Yeah, most of them said it was worth it because of the beauty and community in the remote Hawaiian towns. And they claim that they can prepare for it. Volcanoes give enough notice that they're about to erupt. And if their homes are destroyed, they say they'll just rebuild. It's so interesting to me. I mean, it reminds me of my sister because she was looking for houses in Utah. And we grew up in Utah. And we just kind of got used to the mountains being on fire in the summers. You just like look out the window and just see patches burning on these mountain ranges. And even though we knew it was a disaster, it just kind of felt normal. So when I asked her about if she took that into consideration when looking for houses, because they had checked out some houses on the mountain, and she said, no, haha, <laughs> in her text. And I don't know, I just find that so interesting because I don't know that many people are thinking about natural disasters when they're looking for houses, right? But at the same time, natural disasters are always going to happen pretty much anywhere. So should it be something we're taking into consideration more than we are now? I mean, the state government in Utah is. I read that they rate areas in Utah based on how at risk they are for wildfires. And the highest you can get is a 12. And you grew up in Farmington. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that's a seven. So okay. on a scale from zero to 12, that's a seven, meaning that it's pretty high risk of yeah. being affected by wildfires. It kind of amazed me how many little red dots of 12 on the map at extreme risk, that's what a 12 is, to be 
destroyed by wildfire. Yeah. And it's interesting, I haven't lived in Utah for uh, about five years now, but um, whenever I go back to visit, it looks like there's houses higher and higher on the mountain each time I go back. I don't know if that's just because I've been gone for a long time, but I wouldn't doubt it, right? Because we're kind of running out of other space. It's like either you go west away from the mountains, which is not as fun, or you go higher on the mountains, which is more fun and more dangerous. <laughs> It's just interesting. I just don't know that they're taking it as much into account. But again, I can't speak for them, I suppose. I mean, I don't think they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Currently, if you were in the market, there is a mansion in an 11 zone for $1.6 million. It's quite beautiful. Oh, steal of a deal. <laughs> yeah, look to it. <laughs> it's like right on the mountain. It's a beautiful view. Because that's like what we're chasing, right? It's just the beautiful view. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, those people are richer. They can afford this extravagance, but they're also at risk. And people are doing it everywhere, right? Like we build closer to the ocean, too, for the same kind of view, the same kind of status. But we just know there will be earthquakes, there will be fires, there will be tidal waves, there will be tornadoes. But we build closer to it. Sometimes you can't get away from it, right? Like you have a job that puts you in Houston where you just know a hurricane's going to hit you. And that's, you know, sometimes just unavoidable. We just have to go places to survive. But building higher on a mountain or closer to the ocean, is that something we should be avoiding? Or can we? Or can we? And you experienced that firsthand because you lived in a hurricane-prone zone. Yeah, I was in Houston for a couple years, and I never experienced a hurricane, but I did experience flooding. Pretty much any time we'd get a huge downpour of rain, it was just the streets would just flood immediately. They're just like not built for the weather that they endure all the time, which they're, is ironic. <laughs> yeah, they're built for the opposite. The more concrete and infrastructure they put in the city of Houston, the more the flooding increases. Right, yeah. There's nowhere for the water to go. I know, you'd think we'd be more prepared. Right. <laughs> which I think is why I was interested in checking out Smith Island. It's this island um, off the coast of Maryland's eastern shore. It's in the Chesapeake Bay, um, and it's completely at sea level. And according to scientists, climate researchers, it's going to be underwater in 2100. But despite that, people are still moving there, knowing that this number is looming. This deadline is in front of them. But it's slow approaching, right? Like that's the idea of natural disasters. It's a paradox. It can happen in an instant. You can prepare all you want but you don't really know what's going to hit you until it's in front of you and what devastation it's going to cause. But yet at the same time, you have so much possibly could do in the efforts to safeguard yourself, your family, your house from these natural disasters. Yeah, and maybe I'm just too like nihilistic about it, but I'm like, how much can you prepare? How much should we prepare? And how much should we be heading somewhere else? Should we keep making things to save ourselves from disasters we could have caused? Or should we just let nature try to rebuild itself and we huddle in the middle of the United States in tornado zone? <laughs> Inward and north. <laughs> Inward and north. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to discover.
found out about Smith Island from a friend a few years ago. He said it was the last inhabited island in the Chesapeake Bay. He'd heard that the locals talk in an old English accent and that their family lines trace back to the original colonizers from the 1600s. And he told me that Smith Island is sinking. Over the next few months, I kept thinking about Smith Island sporadically while I was washing the dishes or doing mindless tasks at work. What did the sinking look like? How did the people cope with it? I wanted to see for myself. Smith Island sits 10 miles off the coast of Maryland's eastern shore in the Chesapeake Bay. You can only get there by ferry, about a 45-minute ride. This is Summer's Cove Marina. It's owned and operated by the state of Maryland. And over here on your left, as you're leaving the harbor, you see the Coast Guard Station, also the Department of Natural Resources. I watched the white water rush behind the boat until I started to see low wetlands on the horizon. Herons and egrets stood on broken docks, almost like they were guarding the channel that leads to Smith Island. The island looked like a bunch of separate pieces. Google Maps shows how creeks divide the island into slices of land. At all angles, the water is intruding. In the distance, tiny house silhouettes were on the shoreline. We landed in Ewell, one of the three towns that makes up Smith Island. I walked the dirt path around Ewell, which took about 20 minutes in its entirety. Winding past a church, another church, two restaurants, a general store, a museum, and a cake shop that sells Smith Island's famous multi-layer cake. The rest was small houses, shacks, and wharf-like buildings. It honestly looked like a lot of Maryland suburbs just plopped on an island. Most of the houses around me had the curtains drawn. I had this weird feeling that I was interrupting something. As I walked, I looked around and saw only fellow tourists that had been on the ferry with me. No locals in sight. I could almost feel all of our foreign footprints on the gravel. All our new feet weighing the island down, as if we were pushing it further and further into the bay. Smith Island is sinking, or rather eroding, due to the rising sea levels from climate change. The cause is a tale you've likely heard before. As humans release more carbon and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the average temperatures increase, and glaciers and ice sheets melt and the ocean rises. The Chesapeake Bay is relentless in its natural beating, waves pushing against the jetties and seawalls set up to protect Smith Island's shorelines. Worn out shacks and broken docks surround Smith Island. This constant reminder of the island's impending future Smith Island lost over 3,300 acres of wetlands in the last 150 years. At this rate, the island will be completely submerged by 2100. I wanted to understand how locals feel about the island's deadline. I found Elizabeth Landon in Smith Island's Little Museum. She was 16, the pastor's daughter, and one of four teenagers in Ewell. Elizabeth's family used to live on Tillman Island, another island in the Chesapeake, 
but one that has a car accessible bridge to the other side of Maryland. Elizabeth's father jumped on the opportunity to be the pastor in Ewell since he had grown up there. But Elizabeth was not fond of the island. There was nothing to do, nowhere to go, no way to get there even if there were somewhere to go. And she's homeschooled, which separates her even further from the other island teenagers. My parents always say that they wish that I was like growing up around their time because it was a lot more kids and a lot more happening. Like over there, it's Rooks. That was a store just like other stores around here, but it was more popular. There's a lot more young kids and adults that hung out there, had parties, just did all that. A lot more people were living here also, mm -hmm. so it was just more lively. Wow. Elizabeth watched over the years as houses were taken down. She watched bushes grow over the abandoned lots. Grass covered old paths her dad used to ride on his motorcycle. But despite these small signs that change is coming, new people are moving to the island right now. Some families have moved full-time, some have taken up summer residencies, and some come for retirement. Each year, more and more tourists arrive by ferry to stay in the local B&Bs. But the island didn't look like it was growing to accommodate the new residents. There was only so much land available, and as far as I could tell, no new houses were being built. It seemed that instead of novelty and opportunity, the island attracted outsiders looking for peace. And the nature. Yeah, the nature. Totally, yeah. That yeah. was probably primary. primary. Mm -hmm. which, which parts of the nature do you like the best? Um, just the beauty, the water, being close to the water. Oh, yeah. Like, behind my house is a pier and I can go sit and drink my coffee oh, with my feet in the water. Just a dream. Yeah, it is. It really is. This is Sean McCreary an employee at the local cake shop. He'd moved to Smith Island from Delaware. That's just incredible. Like you can go out to the uh, road going to Rhodes Point. It's another town, this is Yule, and there's another town out. You have to go down this long road. Okay. You turn left at the church down, because it's really beautiful. Mm. It's just green, emerald green um, field, marsh fields on yeah. each side and birds and everything. And it's just, but if you go out there at night, it's like pitch black. Right. And you can see the Milky Way. It's like a planetarium. He didn't know he missed birds and sky until all he could see were birds and sky. People are drawn to Smith Island for the herons perched on half-sunk docks, the stars, and the Chesapeake, along with the slower way of existing. Residents make a living off of crabbing, fishing, oystering, waterfowl hunting, and by selling Smith Island cake. They still have internet and television and phones on the island, but the lack of cars, industrial buildings, and virtually any unnatural noise allows for a quiet, back-to-our-roots way of life. So it's ironic, then, that the people come for nature, but nature will eventually force them to leave. You would think this deadline would be on residents' minds more than it is. They seemed bored, if not slightly defensive, when I asked how they felt about choosing to live on a sinking island. I mean, does that ever... Worry I guess me? It's, yeah, yeah, like, how well, is Well, I'm 52, so it's like, it's not gonna happen while I'm alive. Right, I right. I really doubt, unless okay. something crazy happens, yeah. which who knows. This was a common answer. Smith Island's residents are generally older adults. 
some whose family have lived there since the 1600s, and some who came to the island to retire. Instead of focusing on the island's imminent disappearance, though, they choose to focus on what people are trying to do to elongate its existence. Representatives from an organization called Smith Island United frequently travel from the island to Washington, D.C. and Maryland state governments to advocate for restoration funds. Smith Island United's website shows an expansive list of different projects, anything from shoreline stabilization to jetty work to drainage studies, funded by different Maryland state agencies. The rocks lined up on shorelines and cobbled together to look like a stone version of a boardwalk these types of projects help quell the rising tides. They're not permanent solutions, but residents are hopeful they'll prolong Smith Island's peaceful existence. I talked to Freddie, the man who ran the golf cart and bicycle rental, and found out that he moved to Smith Island for a respite for his wife's PTSD. He said they'll likely stay on the island until they physically can't live there any longer. He acknowledged that the island would be gone soon, but he was unfazed. He said they'd deal with it later. You know, my wife and I had a conversation the other day. As you would think that uh, with that experience, and it's nothing new that they would have stuff now to combat that a little bit better. Mm, right. You yeah. know, but they don't seem to. It's all still manpower, whatever, whatever. You would think. He mentioned the mudslides in California and the fires in Utah. He told me about his daughter who moved to Texas right down Tornado Alley. He trailed off and we both looked out at the Chesapeake, the water beating against the rocky shoreline. We named disaster after disaster, and humans were always right in the middle of them. Well, that's what, that's the mentality here. I mean, it's probably mine and a lot yeah. of the guys you talk to, but if it happens, you have to leave and maybe one day we won't be able to come back. Yeah. But until wow. then, Heartbreaking. you know, but I think, like I say, I think that most people worry, a lot of people, especially my age or whatever, is, is, is that big disaster, hurricane is true, it's going to stop yeah. it. That's uh, the we're thing. not going to be around to see if it sings or not, I don't think. <sighs> people his age did see these things, though, as recently as 2013, when Hurricane Sandy caused flooding and damage to houses and crab shanties and docks. The damage was so bad in some areas of the island that the state proposed a buyout for a few homeowners. But the people would not leave. The little museum Elizabeth worked in outlined Smith Island's determination to rebuild after the disaster. The plan called for sustaining livelihood, building the local economy, developing infrastructure, expanding transportation, and growing the population for the next 80 years until the island is vacated and covered by the Chesapeake. The difference here is that natural disasters, like a hurricane, are random. The erosion, however, is inevitable. Retiring in Utah is different than retiring on Smith Island. In Utah, you don't have to live on the mountains, closer to wildfires. You can live in the valley. On Smith Island, no matter what, you're close to the water. This inevitability, though, doesn't deter us. A slow approaching deadline has always been humans' downfall. We think we have time until we don't. It's frustrating that Smith Island bears the brunt of climate change when it's actually a good representation of the type of society we might lean towards in a carbon neutral world. People walk or bike or drive electric golf carts. 
There are no factories producing enormous amounts of waste, no coal mines, no oil refineries, no factory farms. And yet, they are the ones who will be eventually forced from their homes and separated from their culture. Many have been forced from their land due to climate change. This is not a new story, not even for other islands in the Chesapeake Bay. The same erosion process took out Holland Island, an island that used to stand about 10 miles north of Smith Island, also colonized in the 1600s. About 300 people built houses and created a community there. As generations passed, the shoreline shrunk. People moved inland, and still the water found them. When they couldn't go further inland, they disassembled their houses, labeled the different pieces, and rebuilt in Crisfield, Maryland. Despite locals' efforts, after so many years of wind and water disintegrating the land, only one house was left on Holland Island. In pictures, the house stands surrounded by water, leaning and gray like a spirit in pain. It became a symbol of hope to some, and inevitability to others. It finally fully collapsed in 2010, after a strong windstorm tore it to pieces, leaving broken, cracked wood floating over the sunken land. The people on Smith Island both faced this reality and shied away from it. I mean, I think it's common knowledge, right, that, like, the island is sinking. Is that something that people talk about a lot or consider? It's not that big of a deal anymore. And so you can walk that whole thing in winter and not see a soul. Wow. Not a car. Like, nobody. And it's actually a really neat feeling. It's Mm -hmm. like, uh, but it's, it gives it sort of a, a ghostly... Like a fading sort of feeling like this place is kind of dying hmm. but that has kind of changed in the last year or two so would you say I guess there's like generally are people not really talking about it or just kind of don't and they try tend not to because yeah, I mean you know like, a lot of stuff is what are you going to do yeah basically you, you mostly everyone will be here until they can't and yeah. for most of us it's you know we'll live here until we die right. it's an island of paradoxes There are no police officers, but also virtually no crime. There are also no doctors. They want to catch crabs, but the Chesapeake is polluted, though that doesn't stop anyone from fishing it. They want to ride their bikes to Rhodes Point and birdwatch or listen to the waves, but the path is sometimes flooded. The adults want to come back home and the teenagers want to leave as soon as possible. The people know too much about each other, and they love their community, and they want to save the island for themselves and their posterity. They have no direct control over the systems that induce climate change. They work to save the island due to a ghostly request from a picture of the past. The captain of the ferry, Captain Smith, has lived on Smith Island all his life. When I spoke to him, he was busy taking down chairs from the ferry's deck. He was gruff, short with me. Like either he didn't have time to talk, or he was sick of thinking through the same stories, of coming up with the answers for unanswerable questions, of taking the heat for someone else's problem. He jokingly said he wasn't worried about the sinking and erosion because he lives on the second floor. 
And when I asked what his breaking point would be to leave the place he'd lived and loved all his life, he said, Well, life wait, wait and see. Yeah. Feet start getting wet all the time. You know? Yeah. When you open the front door, you're in the bay. At this point, though, I didn't expect any other answer. I think all humans have accepted that disaster is imminent. We just literally can't think about it or we'll go crazy. Climate change-fueled disasters are a reality for everyone now. We can only linger on the sadness, the guilt, for so long. Each resident acknowledged the issues and then reminded me, and themselves, what made the island worth saving. For Freddie, it was a silence. For Sean, nature. And for Elizabeth, the community. In all its goodness and beauty, Smith Island still felt empty and downtrodden. It has an expiration date, and before then, it will be like Holland Island. The people will move in, clinging to their way of life, until they have to move off. Elizabeth Landon will, at some point, leave Smith Island. Though she told me that the erosion wasn't that big of a deal anymore, I could only picture her family taking their house down, board by board and rebuilding elsewhere. She is of the generation that will see the most change, and they'll have to decide what to do with the rubble of memory. Carrying on might be as simple as what we know of displaced civilizations of the past or far-off civilizations in the present. Not forgetting, but also not dwelling on what we can't recover. I'm waiting for the ferry, looking at this for sale sign sitting on a small piece of land across Levering Creek, about 40 feet from Yule. I can't stop looking at it, the sign in the middle of nothing, like the last person standing on the tip of the ship while the rest of it sinks. Do realtors answer questions about nature, the quiet, and the community? Or about seawalls and flooding and deadlines? What world are we advertising? If I blink, Smith Island is there. If I blink again, there's only water. Yeah. Nobody really talks about it. Yeah, nobody's like worried. Yeah, they're not much. worried. Yeah. Because they know that if it does, it'll be a long time before right. it does. So. You know, we'll live here until we die. Um, but yeah, I don't really worry about that too much. Yeah. I feel sorry for the people who have, like, grown, or who are indigenous and their whole life and culture and history is here. idea that you know a deadline has to be concrete in order for you to to act on it and so for a long time you know we knew the science behind climate change going back decades and decades yet we didn't really do anything about it but now that we're starting to be able to say like ah you know we can expect this much sea level rise by this date 
or we can see actual temperature changes happening in real time. You know, as, as things become more real to us, I think it's starting to spur people to action in a way they haven't before. That's writer and editor Christopher Cox, who will be speaking to me about what he discovered about deadlines when writing his recent book, The Deadline Effect. So this section of the podcast had a deadline, and I blew past it. What I got done instead was a book review I was sitting on for four months too long. My new deadline spotlighting this other failure on my calendar. And as much as I want to end my confession there, to make it seem like my procrastination was still productive, I should also say that I managed to watch the first four episodes of Station Eleven on HBO before getting started on this piece. This is the deadline effect. While deadlines have been proven to encourage productive behavior, they also act like black holes, drawing time and energy towards themselves as work gets delayed until right before time expires. That is what Christopher Cox is researching in his book titled The Same, with the subheading, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. Cox is a magazine editor, well acquainted with deadlines. I thought a lot about how to make sure writers met their deadlines. That sort of grew into, okay, well, I've got some tactics there. And that includes, you know, setting concrete deadlines for the writer, setting them early rather than late, making us interdependent, like just sort of checking in with them a lot and, and making sure that they were on track. Uh, but then I, then I... Well, as I said, you know, I, I've been, I worked for magazines for, I feel like a long time, 17 years now. The very beginning was actually not even thinking about it at the level of organization, but on the level of like how I do my job better. So part of my job as a magazine editor is to make sure the writer is going to turn things to me on time. And I started to come up with my own like little pet theories and, and tactics to, to make sure things were sent back to me on time. The writer doesn't turn in their, their assignment to me it's going to hurt them, perhaps, but it's going to hurt me even more. The magazine is going to go out there on newsstands no matter what, and if there's a big hole in it where my piece is supposed to be, I'm in big trouble. Looking beyond his own deadlines, Cox considered the magazine as an organization, complex and multifaceted, and wondered how this big machine met its deadlines. And then that expanded to what other organizations are good at this and what are they doing? And so then, then I was off on my road trips and sort of spent, you know, a year studying nine different organizations to see what they did right and what they did wrong. The deadline effect opens by talking about time, as portrayed by the ancient Greeks. First, there is Kronos, the flow of time, depicted as an old man, representing the kind of time that ticks away from birth to death. But the Greeks also had Kairos, this young, healthy, athletic man who represents the most opportune moment. He is qualitative time, full of action, but hard to hold on to. It is Kairos we wait around for, that perfect time to get something done. The problem with Kairos is that if we procrastinate, we might miss him entirely. Cox's research reveals that we are time inconsistent and present biased. We choose for the moment instead of for the long drive. We tend to underestimate how good those future gains will feel 
especially up against the present joy of doing nothing, or at least nothing like the work that needs to be done. There is a term for this, hyperbolic discounting. And in relation to underestimating future benefits, we overestimate the amount of time we will have. In the immediate present, putting off a task provides relief. And we know from basic behaviorism that when we're rewarded for something, we tend to do it again. This is precisely why procrastination isn't a once a year mistake. Often, it becomes a chronic habit. Cox's work is meant to pull us out of these painful cycles, away from such bad excuses, and show us instead the benefit of setting and resetting our countdown clocks to buy the time needed and use it most productively. The deadline, he says, is the effective mechanism we need to solve our weakened will, to overcome our natural inclination to delay hard work. In fact, he says the earlier we get working, the better. Not setting interim deadlines. The thing you need to do is first take a deadline seriously. Second, if it's a big project and too far away, break it up into smaller chunks so that you have deadlines hitting you as early as possible. And there's all sorts of research into how you know, earlier deadlines are more effective. And of course, maybe you can't accomplish everything if you set an early deadline, but you can accomplish part of what you want to do by an early deadline. I mean, my favorite example about early deadlines was not about like an onerous task that people had to do, but a psych experiment where they gave people a chance to get a free slice of cake and they gave away two kinds of coupons. One expired in three weeks and the other expired in two months. And the people who had three weeks to get cake, so less time, were five times more likely to actually cash it in. So the people who had two months to get a piece of cake, they always thought they'd have more time and they let it slip by and then they ran out of time and they didn't, they didn't go, go to the bakery and get their cake. So I think about it all the time in these psych experiments I've read about and in some of the organizational studies I did where I embedded in a bunch of different companies, I saw it sort of playing out again and again. break, we take a closer look at some of those companies to see what they can teach us about deadlines. A lot about the book was sort of getting in under the hood in all these organizations and seeing how they worked, both with deadlines and just in general, like how a world-class restaurant came together how they use deadlines for that, but then also just you know, how they make this dish so good. I learned at length about how certain recipes had to be followed to like, you know, basically the micrograms, like so precise in a way that I always, you know, I always thought cooking was an art and maybe it is for some people, but for the very high-end places, it's also a science. And, um, and that was kind of eye-opening to see. We're talking to Christopher Cox and in his book, The Deadline Effect, he shares some intriguing insights into how a variety of organizations base major deadlines. He investigates how lily farmers get all the blooms they need in time for Easter, also how a ski resort grooms a snowy mountain in time for Thanksgiving, how a restaurant opens on time, and more. One of my favorite chapters in the book profiles Best Buy and its preparations for Black Friday. The chapter is titled, Become a Mission-Driven Monster. To best learn from the ground, Cox even takes a seasonal job there, selling televisions. 
I, I, I went undercover at Best Buy. I, I didn't want to. I, I tried to go and ask the, you know, corporate entity to like, can I go observe Best Buy during Black Friday? It was a deadline I wanted to see on the ground, but they just stopped responding to me. And so I got a job there and just worked Black Friday instead. And I was very impressed with, with how they handled it. I think there is a reason that Best Buy has had fewer problems on Black Friday compared to Walmart and some other stores that have been overrun by people. That year, Best Buy expected about 6,000 customers in one day, compared to the 500 on a normal day. Before the sales officially started on Thursday evening, the Best Buy departments would be divided by barriers of products in order to break the wave of customers into smaller, more manageable streams. Customer service and Geek Squad would be closed, extra security would be on hand, employee lunches catered, and the big ticket item would be held out back behind the store where patrons could exchange a ticket for the goods. But the most impressive change made Best Buy look less like a mission-driven monster and more like a mission-driven squad. This thing they did related to interdependence. Basically, the best organizations uh, take deadlines seriously, but they also make sure that no individual is facing a deadline alone. On a normal working day, on a non-Black Friday day, everyone is kind of standing alone. Like, you know, you have a manager and, and you know, you're not literally alone in the store, but to make a sale, you're on your own. You take the customer, you ring them up, and, it, and you get a commission or you get credit for it within the store's system. That whole system goes away on Black Friday. In order for a customer to buy something on Black Friday, they have to be handed off from one employee to the other. Each person is doing a small part to make the sale possible. And that creates efficiencies that don't exist on a normal day. And it doesn't need to happen on a normal day because there's not you know, 10 times the normal number of customers. In the like literature about organizational theory, that's called increasing interdependence. And Best Buy goes from pooled interdependence to sequential interdependence. But all it really means is just you're creating a sort of like bucket brigade to get the work done when you're being flooded with, with, with customers. Pooled sequential interdependence. This terminology comes from the organizational therapist, James Thompson, who identified three types of task interdependence. That is the design of a team when colleagues rely on each other to get a job done. Pooled interdependence, like pooling resources, is when team members all work towards the same goal, usually by doing the same task independently. In sequential interdependence, members of a team rely on each other in predictable ways, creating a flow of information, tasks, and decisions, each person doing their assigned part in the work. And finally, reciprocal interdependence, which is more of a back and forth. As team members are sequentially interdependent, relying on each other, but in less predictable ways, as workers need to adjust to each other's actions as the situation changes. Think soccer team. All players relying on each other in pretty predictable ways, but still adjusting as the gameplay evolves. I tie that into my experience working in magazines where magazines like GQ, where I used to work, uh, have basically never missed an issue. You know, it comes out monthly. You know, you think about like construction projects that never get done. The Sydney Opera House, you know, it took 12 years to build. I'm supposed to take seven, no, 16 years to build. I'm supposed to take seven. Here in New York, where I am, there is the Second Avenue subway, which took like 40 years to build for some reason. And you compare that with a place like GQ, which is like, you know, not run by people who are the most disciplined human beings in the world or not more disciplined than anyone else. 
and yet they've never missed a month. Part of the reason I think that's true is how interdependent a magazine is. Like Best Buy, where the employees all coming together and working together to hand off tasks to each other, the same thing happens at a magazine where in order to get you know, a photograph published or an article published, so many hands are on it and so many people are counting on each other. So if I'm editing a piece, I'm corresponding with the writer, but I'm also corresponding with the art department and the fact-checking department and the copy department. Everyone is sort of like demanding that things get done on time and having that cross interdependence among different departments sort of make sure that things don't fall, fall too far behind schedule. This interdependence, this effective teamwork, requires strong communication and planning. Some organizations employ dry runs to implement it best, much like the line cooks and wait staff from the chapter on the Jean Georges restaurants. The idea is that you have to prep the restaurant by running the restaurant before it is up and running, and you need a strong team to make it happen, which usually gets stronger in action. Through cooperation, focusing on the task at hand together, rather than on a broad, complex outcome alone, everyone is better motivated. It comes down to a need for interaction with the external world to accomplish difficult tasks. Philosophers Joseph Heath and Joel Anderson pointed the example of multiplication. Most of us cannot multiply three-digit numbers in our heads, but give us a pencil and paper and we can work it out. We need a partner to get it done. Cox's research also points out the benefit of detailed planning, often from right to left backwards from a given deadline. Here's Cox again, sharing what he discovered from a leading airplane manufacturer. Yeah, I mean, and that, you know, the, the lesson from Airbus is building an airplane is a hugely complicated process. And yet the Airbus still promises delivery of airplanes to the airline they're selling it to, whether, you know, it's Delta or American or, you know, Lufthansa. They do start with a delivery date. They don't just say, oh, we'll get to you as soon as possible. Or they don't say, you know, it'll take about five years or whatever. They say, no, we're going to deliver it in March of 2025. And then they start with that and they build back very deliberately the whole schedule so that there's no empty space between the deadline itself and today. This planning right to left is something Smith Island does in order to fight against their own deadline. So in some ways, like, it's good news for them that they have a specific date in mind because that enables them to start planning. Other places where I guess, you know, there are more question marks about how climate change is going to affect them will probably be slower to act because they don't have like a, a concrete date in mind uh, to work toward or, or, you know, as you say, planning right to left to work backward from in terms of um, trying to get things done on time. To get things done, it seems like all of us, Smith Island, Best Buy, airplane manufacturers, need to learn to adapt and overcome. Not a bad motto, right? Adapt and overcome, especially when you can do it as a team. That's the game plan of the 621st Contingency Response Wing of the United States Air Force. The first responders that set up and carry out relief efforts after natural disasters. 
In Puerto Rico, after Hurricane Maria, the 621st completed 2,800 airlift missions to distribute 16 million pounds of aid. Where there is no airfield, they make one, or repair one, or come up with Plan C. For the squadron's motto is, you guessed it, adapt and overcome. Cox met the 621st at McGuire Air Force Base amidst preparations for a possible response to Hurricane Florence, set to hit land in a day's time. In his walk around base and in interviews and even on a souped-up golf cart ride with Alpha Mike, Cox describes everyone with the same term, calm. They were calm because they were prepared. The 621st is calm because they've already done the hard work. They don't yet know the exact makeup of the disaster, but they've practiced every step of deployment, checked and rechecked equipment, carried out full simulated runs, and packed their bags. They epitomize the well-oiled machine that at any moment can be started and raced into action without delay. In analyzing the Air Force, Cox turns to a researcher out of MIT who claims that the deadline effect, that black hole time suck of it, disappears when a deadline is random when it is triggered by an event, something beyond people's control. The 621st faced natural disasters, which could strike at any time. The calm they achieved came from concentrating on what they would need to do when called into action. They took the incoming event seriously. They were interdependent, they did mock trials, and they planned right to left. They did the work. I had a sort of layman sense of deadline as being like um, a useful tool that we use to get things done, but it wasn't something to celebrate necessarily. But after writing the book and reporting the book, I now think of them very differently. I think of them with, with, you know, I think of them as joyful things like interventions in our lives that make our lives more meaningful and help us, you know, the, What's painful in life is not meeting a deadline. It's all the procrastination and aimlessness that comes before we meet the deadline. And so if you sort of view them through the lens of like, oh, this is something that helps me be my most creative self or my happiest self and my most productive self um, in ways that are rewarding, then then you embrace deadlines and, and realize like they're they're part of a life well lived. In The Deadline Effect, Cox's case studies humanize the larger-than-life workhorses that get shit done. And that encourages thoughtful reflection on the individual reader's part. On an individual reader like me, who also wants to get shit done. If we know we underestimate the future benefits, and overestimate the time we have, then we can mindfully reverse this way of thinking, set shorter deadlines, and believe in the joy of completing the task. We can call in a coworker to hold us accountable and stop hating our bosses for setting the deadlines in the first place. We can meticulously plan backwards. We can weigh our cake ingredients down to the gram so to not screw up another Ottolenghi masterpiece. Let me come back to station 11 for a second. In episode three, when Miranda is being interviewed for a job in logistics, 
Leon asked her if she knows what that even means. Logistics. Miranda answers, the path things take. Not the path, answers Leon, the right path. You know that scene in the movie Interstellar where Matthew McConaughey's character, Cooper, steps onto the planet that's all water and a ticking starts in the background? The whole time Cooper and his team are on the planet, there's that ticking. They're searching for a way to save Earth, and every moment they spend on the water planet shaves off seven years of Earth time. So Cooper knows he needs to hurry. There's a tidal wave on the horizon, ready to take out all in its path. When they make it back to the spaceship, it's waterlogged. They have to wait an hour for the ship to drain. Tick, 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 tick. I could feel the ticking when I stepped foot on Smith Island. We all know there's a deadline. It's just deciding what route is best for combating the deadline. The group think of Best Buy or staying calm in the face of randomness. And I think Interstellar, though it does show a world that looks like what our world could become, it gives you two options that are far in our future and don't really represent either of those techniques. It's either leave the planet through a wormhole that mankind created 5,000 years in the future when they've discovered another dimension, or die on the planet. That we've just haven't tried at all to save. That's how it seems in the movie, right? It, at the beginning when he, you know, goes to his children's school and the teacher starts talking about how the lunar landing was fake, you know, you can tell that this world is kind of ruled by misinformation and conspiracy. And so it gives you this sense that they haven't tried to even deal with the things that are happening on Earth, right? It seems like the only way out is to go to space, to go somewhere else. It does kind of present this idea, I think, that maybe, in a weird way, stops us from doing anything still. And if you think about it, they make it to the end of the deadline. That ending scene where he gives his, gives his daughter the, the data to save Earth. I mean, there's burning outside, there's a dust storm... The one guy is out there yelling for her, we gotta go, we gotta go. And it's showing that urgency effect where you have to be right up against a deadline to do anything. If we feel the ticking and it feels too overwhelming to solve the problem, but we have time, we just put it off for another day. Where in that movie it shows you that right up against that deadline, your survival instinct kicks in and you do everything you can to try to save the planet. It's just can we wait that long? It really is like all of humankind is just ready somehow to wait until the very end, even though we know that's not good. It's, it is the deadline effect. If, I, if you give me a month to get something done, that time in my brain expands and I feel like I have an affinity of opportunities to make something happen. And so I can just sit on it. Yeah. And everything we find. Because in reality, when you look outside your window, everything does look fine. 
least yeah. for us <laughs> where we live, right? Yeah. We don't see that devastation on a daily basis. It looks like the same world that I've lived in my whole life. So it's very easy to sit on it and just think I have an infinite amount of time. And I think that the problem is that most of the people talking about this are people that don't have very much power, right? The people who are in power and who could do something about it are really backed up by a bunch of factors, right? Being this individual that I am with not all the answers, I, I want a doctor brand. I want someone who's going to lead the charge to save the world. But it, the movie shows you that Dr. Brand was even falsifying information in order to stop mass panic, in order to give people hope. Maybe that's an aspect of it. The big organizations don't want to disrupt the status quo because they don't want panic. They don't want disruption. Disruption creates negativity, and negativity does not equate votes. So we're just going to keep giving the people what they want keep them consuming, keep them driving everywhere, keep them on vacation, keep them entertaining themselves, and then they're happy. Yeah. In a way, it reminds me of um, Cooper's son in the movie Interstellar, right? When uh, Murph goes over to talk to Tom, his wife is coughing, his son is coughing, but he won't accept that something is, you know, terribly wrong with them, right? He's, like, angry that they would even suggest something would be wrong. We just want to believe that what we've created is working and it's going to keep working. Talking to the people on Smith Island, they weren't worried about the future generations. I mean, I think they are. They just didn't talk about it. They just kept saying, I won't be there. I won't have to see it. We're not considering the larger impacts and the generations that are going to see the worst of everything. We're seeing a lot of bad stuff already. <laughs> But, but it's like digestible bad stuff. I know that sounds yeah, no. that sounds terrible. I even had this reaction when you first told me about Smith Island. I was just like, eh, it's just an island. They can move. Like, <laughs> it's just a small little island. No big deal. But it is a big deal. And it's another thing that we're just going to accept as gone. Part of that looks like accepting the downsides, the consequences mm -hmm. that arise from what we've done to our planet. It's disassociating. Like you have to. You have to, yeah. You have to to survive. But, but we shouldn't. <laughs> that's, the, that's what we're getting at right now. But the, the problem is, is we are two individuals yeah. with a limited amount of power. So we can't, we can't open up and be like, these are the steps. It's not that easy. These are complicated topics. Yeah. It's never going to be only up to the individual to make things better. We don't have a Matthew McConaughey. We don't. We have... do, but we, <laughs> he's not going to fly a spaceship into. Yes. There's not one <laughs> person that's going to save the world for us. <laughs> I think it's just up to us to at least think a little more critically about these things. You know, don't write it off that your island is going to be gone before you see it gone. And don't think that our final two choices are leave the planet or just die here we can do more yeah there's <laughs> I think, more i think that's the point <laughs> we can do more before the deadline is upon us yes when i was growing up it was always like well the sun's are going to you know burn out or expand you know and engulf up to mars or that sort of thing but it feels like we've got our own little version of that going on. Mm -hmm.
-hmm. expansion and then explosion. (laughs) The Earth does not have a deadline, but we have a deadline on Earth. Mm -hmm. And that humans probably are not going to be here for much longer. Our deadline's approaching, but I don't think that the Earth will... I mean, the Earth will change, but the Earth will still be here. Nobody thinks about that because they think it's not their problem until it is. And everyone on Smith Island, they've lived there for generations and always thought it was carrying on but now well I guess really you might think that you don't have a deadline until someone tells you that like I don't so much think about it with our lifetime but I think about it with like kids I think the planet is resilient is going to outlive us we're going to wipe ourselves out just like a virus like you kill off the virus and then the the host is gonna heal and regrow it's interesting because we're like a relatively young species as far as species go we will not have lived as long as the average species on Earth. We owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. To Elizabeth Landon, Sean McCreary, Freddie, and Captain Smith, thank you for sharing your thoughts on Smith Island. To Christopher Cox, thank you for telling us more about your research on the deadline effect. And thank you to all our survey participants for your thoughts on our planet's deadline. And a thank you to the source material we used for research and background for this episode. To Smith Island United's website, the many blogs and websites detailing both Smith Island and Holland Island, the documentary An Island Out of Time from Maryland Public Television, and of course, Christopher Cox's book, The Deadline Effect. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Abby Newhouse, and Melissa Wade. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, thewe'reherepodcast.com, and at our Instagram, at we'rehere.podcast. Until next week, we're here.